welcome to a guest in the house podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Mickey Hess. And I am D Shanks, David Shanks, Trom Diggs. Going back to our roots today, we spent uh, a few episodes talking to some guests. And then today it's all me and Dave again. Yep, we're bike. That's it. <laughs> now, um, let's just jump right in there because sure. I wanted to, um, you know, with checking in and asking you how you're doing, uh, when we say we're back, we're still not back. Yeah, we are still at home. Yeah. Um, we're in two different states. I'm in New Jersey. Dave's in Maryland. Yeah. Anthony, our producer, is God knows where. He's on the beach. Somewhere. Boca Raton. I don't know. That's something like that. The Florida Keys. I don't know. Somewhere. <laughs> he's holding it down, though. He's he's recording this session for Absolutely. Us. The dedication. You got to appreciate it. Now, we're at about, uh, I guess we've we've cracked the five-month mark. I think Just so. about, right? Yeah. I think um, it's more than that. It. I, I mark... My um, cousin had a 50th um, birthday gathering the last weekend in February. So that would have been like mm. Sunday the 29th or something like that. I guess you're right. That was your last and big event. Huh? That was like the last time we were all together. And it okay. was probably the week after that, that I'm in Maryland, you're in Jersey, mm-hmm. but this kind of cluster of Northeast um, states started kind of beginning with the stay home stuff so yeah august we're, we're about up about five months in i guess so i know i i left work a little sooner than work called itself off and gotcha. i took my daughter out of school about a week before school shut down gotcha 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 so um the question i was gonna ask just in mm. checking in like i said is it's like how how's it going for you man five months in um We've been recording remotely for maybe the last two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, I think three probably yeah, at this point. Yeah. And so, you know, I think we've talked off mic about some of the, you know, weirdness or adjustment to um, the new way of potting and just the new way of life in general. But I wanted to ask you on air just kind of how you're um how you're dealing with it. I guess I'll start with sure, with me. I, I'm now realizing and I just um spoke to my lady about this the other day, how much I'm being affected by this quote unquote new norm. Mm-hmm. I think in the beginning we just jumped in and it was like survival and just adjusting and, and you're pivoting on the on the fly and just kind of getting things done. How are you getting things done? There was the um you know Guys like me and you, I guess, who you could say are more cerebral. You know, we enjoy a little bit of solitude and some and, and having our own thoughts and, you know, being able to sit with our own thoughts. So the quiet was, Shoot. you know, it wasn't like torture for me. But now it's kind of getting to me. <laughs> a yeah, little I mean, bit more thank than God I thought I'm an introvert, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that 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 part too, that part yeah. too. But I think specifically as it relates to our podcast, I didn't. I took for granted how much the dynamic of us being like hanging out mm-hmm. made the 
podcasts like more enjoyable. <laughs> you know what oh, I mean, I mean <laughs> one of the main reasons I started doing the podcast was to still hang out. You know, you yeah. were down in Maryland. We weren't seeing each other quite as often as we used to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, every couple weeks we would come in, record a couple podcasts and then drink hang a out. Beers. Yeah, yeah, hang drink out. a couple we'll get beers. Something to eat. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think the conversations were a little more lively because of that. I, I think that there's something to be, I mean, we're old school now, right? So there's going to be mm-hmm. a day, maybe, you know, 20, 40 years from now where like the, um, communication in person thing is going to be like a thing of the past. I hope oh, yeah. we don't, I hope we don't get there, but all signs point. <laughs> yeah, so, man. you know, the dynamic of like, yeah, it's different to actually be next to someone in a room mm-hmm. and converse. It's a completely different dynamic than talking on the phone. And that's, I worry about that a little more, like the effects on like my daughter um, and Voss, of course, your son. Right. Right. And the right and the world that's being shaped for them, it's very scary. Yeah, you know, and you wonder, like, how can you balance out physical safety with, like, emotional and social development at their Correct. ages, you know? Correct. Like- Correct. I don't know what, um, what the plans for uh, school reopening is in Jersey. We had the green light mm. for um, in-person upwards to this week and then the um county that Voss is going to attend eighth grade and decided to uh postpone in person that's smart classes until um October. Hmm. We have in Jersey every student has the option to start the fall online. Mm. So that some students are gonna choose a hybrid thing where they go in two days a week for about half a day and the rest of it's online. It sounds like a, a a beautiful time for the teachers. <laughs> oh. And even at Ryder, where I teach, Ryder University, um, some professors are doing a mix, a hybrid. Okay. Uh, we have several different teaching styles. You can do one day a week in the classroom and then the rest of the time online, or you can do totally online, which is what I chose because I, number one, I think it's safest for everybody. Correct. And I, I, number two, it's just way easier for everybody. I mean- Students can barely keep up with what they're supposed to read what day. I certainly don't want to throw in like, and then, you know, Tuesday you come in, but then not yeah. Thursday. And I then think, the next week, you know, you come think, in Thursday. I think the hybrid is going to fail. I, it's going to be you a know, mess. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. You know, get us, we got to get on one page and just, this is how I go to class. Cool. Yep. But uh, I'm in class two days, and then I'm not in class for three, or I'm in class this week, and then I'm not in class that week. It's gonna be, it's gonna be terrible. It's a tough one. It really is. And then, I mean, I do really worry. You know, my daughter is not really hanging out with anyone. You know, mm-hmm. here and there, like her best friend came over for a birthday. They played in the backyard with masks on. Um, but for oh, the most man. part, she's really not able to get out and socialize. Yeah, it's terrible. And uh, yeah, little Voss here, forget about it. He is just face in a screen all day. (laughs) What else are you supposed to do though, right? Yeah. At least he's on the phone. I think the fort, he's got a Fortnite crew that he's, that he's hanging out with that, that we actually know the people. So that's, that's cool. Uh, But yeah, it's, Mm. it's just, you know, they don't know what they're missing. So you don't feel too bad for them, but sure. just you feel bad because it's like, wow, you guys 
don't even know what a childhood really looks like. <laughs> really looks yeah. like. <laughs> and you know, I grew up pretty isolated in the summers, as I've mentioned before on the yeah. podcast, you know, yeah. so I know it's not great. You know, I know it affected my social skills and, uh, it would have been nice to have a little more of a social life at this age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, in my forties now, I kind of love a lot of things about being stuck at home. I bet. Um, I it's bet. I'm getting a lot of work done. Um, I'm enjoying teaching. I'm still keeping in touch with students on Zoom and email and everything else. Um, I'm starting to worry, like, how long is it going to go on? And you know, my mom's in Kentucky. It's sure not safe to try to get down there to see her, but uh. I wonder, you know, when am I going to see my mom again? Crazy, crazy, right? crazy. That's crazy. starting to get to me a little, and and and, and it will, right? And yeah. It, and imagine having to even think about that. Like I'm able-bodied. There's yeah. nothing wrong with me. There's nothing stopping me from visiting my mom, except that I can't. Yeah, except her her safety even above mine. Right? Correct, 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 correct. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so glad I got out to a lot of shows. I got out to a lot of hip-hop shows, a couple of punk shows right before isolation and quarantine hit. And, you know, thank God for Versus. I'm so glad. Versus has been great. I've seen a lot of good live music via the internet on quarantine. I mean, we just watched. I know you were watching Snoop and DMX. Awesome. Yeah. For so many reasons. Yeah, in a way, that was my favorite one so far. It it was. Yeah. It has I cool really stuff. liked um Bounty Man and um mm-hmm. Bounty Man. Bounty Killer and Beanie Man. And Beanie Man, yep. Um but this one just from a you know, the from a cultural uh, I guess they're both my culture because I'm West Indian. But you know, Snoop and in and, and, and DMX just had so many layers. It was so great to see DMX in um you know, with his faculties and looking mm-hmm. sober and, um, you know, healthy and in good spirits. It was great yeah. to see kind Absolutely. of the, 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 the love that Snoop Dogg just comes with and just, you know what I mean? He just, just Snoop, Snoop, Snoop's, he's one of, he's one of one for sure. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it, it was my favorite one as well. Yeah. It had a good energy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, on, on the flip side of all the positivity though, we lost Malik B this week. Oh, man. And that one yeah. hit hard. I mean, you know, the, Dave and I just put together our top 20 albums of the past 20 years, and mine for 2015 was Malik B and Mr. Green. It was. It was. Yeah. It was. That was, I guess, the last thing he released, at least as far as an album. He might have had a couple singles after that. I had it. I didn't hear anything past that. I know he was... He was he was record he was active. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't, re- you know. I don't know where he was with his release schedule. You know what I mean. But I yeah. know he never, he kind of never left, but he left. You know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I'm sure there's more stuff in the vaults. It'll make its way out eventually. But I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. Um, I read. Um, did you see? Um. I saw a post from um, Black Thought that was um, that was real touching. I saw his and I saw Questlove's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, all the Philly legends, Reef the Lost Cause posted, uh, Mr. Green, of course, his collaborator on that 2015 album. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. you don't know, you know, Malik B was part of the Roots crew. He was a founder 
founders of the roots. Hundred um, percent. And they had parted ways and come back together over the years. He left the group and then he came back to the group and then left again. Uh, but as Dave said, you know, he was always still kind of there, still on the margins, still recording music. I mean, it, I I can't begin to obviously have any insight into the relationships or anything mm-hmm. of that nature. It never seemed like um, there was a fallout between Black Thought and Malik. It always seemed that, you know, the the um the the, the I guess the red carpet or the uh, sure. ability to come back in was up to Malik, yeah. more so than say he got like kicked out of the uh, band or anything like that. And um, but um, I mean you know I had to do a little um trip down memory lane, listening to uh, Illadelph Half Life and just yeah. yeah you know just yeah as great and as heralded as Black Thought would go on to become, there was no, I mean, that was a neck and neck group. They're like one of the, they're one of the best duos ever. It didn't, you know, stretch out for a long time so that it, you know, it didn't become Big Boy and Dre or Prodigy and Havoc or anything like that. But um, for their time and for the material that they put out, I mean, Malik B's a tremendous lyricist. Like I've seen some people compare him to like Fife's role in a tribe called Quest. And I and I and I disagree. Really? Yeah. yeah, why would you disagree? Because I think Tribe Called Quest still I think we thought Q Tip was like the lead. Mm. You know what I mean? And while we love Fife and I love Fife. You know what I mean? You got Tip had the solo records. I mean, Fife had one solo record on the um, you know, 1988 senior year at Garvey High. Um, but it was Q-Tip had solo records. We knew Q-Tip was making the music. The Roots in its initial kind of entry into the game was just Malik B and Black Thought. It wasn't like... Like I said, it was more Big Boy and Dre than Q-Tip and Fife. Yeah. You yeah, I mean, I, mean? I, I could see that. I I think in a way, like, the, if you look at the low-end theory, I can see how somebody would describe it that way. Um, well, just yeah. because so by much the low of end theory, back and forth. Yeah, the by guys. the low-end theory, Fife was much more active. And then obviously Midnight Marauders and on, he was sure. much more active. But I guess maybe because the inception of it was kind of like, it's Q-Tip. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Even when Fife came in, for me, it was like, okay, it's Q-Tip and Fife. And mm-hmm. Fife's, Fife stepped up, and that's awesome. So now they're like more of an equal group. But it started with like Q-Tip. Yeah. yeah Fife is kind of barely on that first album. People the Roots, Distortion of Static, the first time mm-hmm. I saw them, it was these guys are the Roots. It wasn't that's like right. Black Thought and this other guy. It was like Bad Lieutenant and Militant, they're the Roots. Mm-hmm. So it was more like I said, it was to me, it would be more big boy and Dre. That's a good description. I like that. But and yeah, you know, tremendous. If, if I could play a little clip, and I don't know if we can get by with much, and uh, we'll, we'll play the appropriate amount <laughs> yeah. not to get in trouble. So here we go. This is from Malik B and Mr. Green's song Devil, which was the first single off of 2015's Unpredictable. 
Right now, you know I gotta think about a topic. Devil want control of my soul, I gotta stop it. Damn, man, I'm having evil thoughts about desire. Lust in the murder, trying to get a hip higher. Yo, I'm out west on the back of the dirty block. Should I stay cool or fucking let the dirty, dirty pop? Then I think for what? Man, I'm in this thing for what? Bodies dropping everywhere. I think the Philly's stinking up. I pull a Lincoln up. Eagles start shrinking up. Niggas acting like the Panther, but they There we go, a little taste of what I think is a really amazing album that didn't really get enough attention when it came out. And hopefully people, even if you never heard of Malik V, it doesn't hurt my feelings at all for you to discover him now just based on the fact that you saw his death announcement. Yeah, um, sometimes yeah. It, it, it bees like that. That's true. I mean, discover him how you discover him, right? I'm sure he would love to have people finding his music right now as opposed to five years ago. You know? yeah. At least they found it. Yeah, 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 a hundred percent, a hundred percent, man. Rest in power, Malik Absolutely. B, man. Ah, man, t- 2020. Yeah, and Bismarck, he, I believe, uh, is still in the hospital. I haven't seen an update. Um, that's the last update I saw. Still yeah. fighting, but um, still in the hospital. So yeah, um, thoughts to Bismarcky, man. Full recovery, please, mm-hmm. please. Another legend, man. So um, I think we did have some topics today. We did. Now that um, we've covered all the bases of how everyone's doing, the goings on over the past couple weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's hop right into it, man. You take you take the lead. You um, brought something to my attention. Yeah. So um, we started off the podcast um, sort of springboarding from a book I wrote about what hip-hop told me or taught me as I was growing up through today about what a white ally can be or what kind of a role a white person can best play when it comes to Black people and Black culture. And what's the name of that book, Mickey? <laughs> the name of that book is A Guest in the House of Hip-Hop. Okay. Uh, and, and that's where we borrowed this title for the podcast. And of course, I borrowed the title of the book from Lord Jamar, who called Macklemore a guest in the house of hip hop, um, who he thought was sort of becoming over familiar with hip hop right. culture to the point that Macklemore thought that he could criticize lyrical content and sort of political stances that hip hop artists had espoused. Right. Right. And that is kind of the basis for our conversation that blossomed into this podcast. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a question, you know, I constantly ask myself um, as, a, as a white author and professor who, who has written some books and articles about hip hop, who does this podcast, who teaches classes. Not only I teach a class on hip hop and American culture, but I also involve a lot of uh, short stories and novels and poetry by black authors when I teach literature and creative writing. Um, you know, we certainly look at Figures like W.E.B. Du Bois and some of his writing on mm-hmm. Reconstruction and the Civil War when I teach my uh, Intro to American Studies class. And, you know, at, it, at its base, I don't think anyone would encourage white professors not to include black voices in their syllabus. Right. I would hope not. Because that's, that's easy. That's what white professors have done forever. Right. Yeah. The canon has leaned very white and very male. Correct. Very cis, straight, hetero going way back. Right. Right. 
Um, so I don't think anybody's saying, well, you know, I don't want a white lip professor to teach James Baldwin. Right. But there is also a moment where you can push it too far or become too familiar or, um, forget basically who you are. Correct. Where your perspective is coming from as a white person, as a white scholar, as a white teacher at the front of the classroom. And certainly you could very easily overstep a boundary. Um, and I think it probably happens more in the classroom than anywhere else. Hmm, interesting. Because, yeah, I mean, you kind of you're the authority, right? Right, right. You're running the show. You're right. running the show. So you know, you're standing in front of a class. You're talking about James Baldwin. The assumption, especially on your part, is that you know more about James Baldwin than the students you're teaching Baldwin to. Mm. Fair assumption, in a way. You know, you assume you've gone to grad school. You've gotten some degrees. Probably you're not teaching anything that you haven't studied quite a bit mm. um, and hopefully written on, you know, researched, become something of a, an authority to speak on. Yeah. Now, it becomes tricky, though, you know, when you're a white scholar teaching a black author and you have a black student. Certainly, you can't assume that that black student knows any more about James Baldwin just by virtue of being black. Correct. Than the white student sitting next to him. That would be a pretty faulty assumption. You certainly wouldn't want any white professor to say, okay, you know, Fred over here, I'm sure you know all about James Baldwin. Mm. Right? (laughs) Right. That would be a, a really dumb move. It would really put this student on the spot. It's making the wrong kind of assumption. Correct. Obviously. You know, any any more that, than you would point at a white student and say, "Well, Mike, you're white. You probably know all about F. Scott Fitzgerald." Right. right. <laughs> Just, right. That's right. not the way we grow up in this country. Right. And the flip side of that, then, being because I think what you're getting at, which is interesting, um, or what I picked up on, mm. is um, the difference between and and when you say that it shows up most in the world of academia, I can now see that because where else. Is there a substitution for lived experience with studied knowledge? Nowhere, right? <laughs> so the the premise that someone who has read every James Baldwin book is now qualified to tell someone who may have lived every James Baldwin book that they know more about James right. Baldwin than the other, but simply by having read James Baldwin, mm-hmm. that's when it gets tricky, right? So, like, if if, sure. if 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 um, and I'm gonna screw the quote up, but you know, James Baldwin um said once something to the effect of to be black in um America is to be in constant rage, constant state of rage. That's it. Correct. As a professor, I could interpret that in whatever way I interpret it and based on my knowledge of Baldwin's writings. Mm-hmm. As a black man, I can go, oh, he said that? I didn't even know that. That's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether I knew he said it or whether I read the context or read the text that it was in. I just know that to be a true statement. Oh, man, that makes sense. Right. 
And, you know, that could be a very powerful moment in the classroom, right? Even if the student came to class without having done the reading, that quote resonates somehow with that student's experience. And I think the job um, in academia is just what you said, to spark curiosity, to (laughs) let the student um, gain an enthusiasm and excitement for learning. So mm-hmm. the question then is, you know, if you're a white student, why is that a true statement for black people? Why, what would make black people feel that way? Right. Yeah. And then the, you know, the question for the black student is like, well, why do you agree with that? Or why, you know, and therefore everyone can enter at you know we talked about entry points even when we talked sure. about being an ally or the previous um episode we talked about everyone's entry point some people are coming in and that's kind of um and i don't know that we have we addressed no name and j cole yet you know barely that kind of happened in the midst of some of our interviews i think it did but um even that we talk about entry points and and j cole was um speaking of like well you know more than i do mm-hmm. so don't you know don't beat me over the head <laughs> and no name is kind of like it's not my fault i know more than <laughs> you do get yourself together you know what i'm yeah. saying <laughs> and don't be a right? distraction and so and it's not my job to teach you ah right and there we now we're and we're back there with yeah it's your it, job to educate yourself and so what you're asking is if I'm an educator, is it my job to educate on blackness? <laughs> and like, what is the ledge there? You know what I mean? Like where, where, where's the room that I can operate in? How do we establish what's going too far? What we shouldn't do even with good intentions. And it's a question of degrees. You know, if, you have a white person teaching a class on African-American lit. That's the name of the class. Mm-hmm. And you have a white professor. Obviously, you've got to problematize that in the classroom. You have to address that. You have to ask all students of all colors to think about what that means and why that is. Right. So if we're going back to Baldwin's quote, you're having students think about what would make Baldwin say that being black in America creates a constant state of rage. Right. You could extend that to, well, you know, why why do we have a white professor introducing this book to you in this quote? And well, think about, you know, what did your past professors, how many of your professors look like you? How many of your high school and junior high teachers looked like you? And then you get into some really tricky territory, right? Mm-hmm. And the other side of academics... um, When you're trying to publish research, there's a system of blind or anonymous peer review. So Mm. your work, your research goes out there and your name's not attached to it. Your gender's not attached to it. Your race and ethnicity's not attached to it. Um, Experts on Baldwin say, if I wrote an article on Baldwin and sent it out, um, experts on Baldwin would read it not knowing who wrote it. Whether it was a, a man or a woman, a white scholar, Latina, a black scholar. Right. Unless you explicitly said something in the text to make them know that. 
And typically, if you do, they want you to black it out or redact mm, it. Nice. Because okay. the whole system is supposed to be anonymous. They're also not supposed to be able to tell, well, this guy teaches at Yale, so obviously it's going to be great. Gotcha. You know, so it puts you on equal, equal footing, say, if you're at Mercer County Community College or Philadelphia Community College, you're supposed to have an equal shot because there's mm. nothing to identify you. Okay. So ideally, the work gets judged and or published on its own merits. Um, should have nothing to do with the author's identity. Mm. Do the um, do, are there any statistics that say that that's exactly how it happens? Yeah. <laughs> for the most part, <laughs> I mean it's it's a better system than the alternatives. Correct. Um, for example, in creative writing, that's one of the few academic fields that doesn't work on a system of blind review. So if you're Joyce Carol Oates and you send in a short story, they know it's from Joyce Carol Oates. And of course, they're going to look at that differently than someone they've never heard of. Mm, right. And right. That, that system, I don't think, does work nearly as well. Because you tend to see the same folks published over and over. Um, even somebody used diversity against that system. There was a white mm. poet a few years ago who had a poem rejected under his real name. And then he sent it back out under a Chinese person's name. And he mm. found somewhere to publish it. Mm. And now look at that. We've taken a system designed to remove identity from the equation, but right. only in creative writing, your name goes out with stuff. Mm. And now this poet says, well, it's, it's interesting to me that they wouldn't publish it when, I, when they thought I was white, but now that it's an Asian name, they publish it. Mm. And that's, that's, a, that's a pretty fucked up experiment, man. I can't see any true good coming out of that. I get that. I get that. I get that. It is, it, I mean, it is, it is curious though. Mm -hmm. It is curious. I don't know what the poem, you know, I'd need more context before I could like have a stance on it, but it's interesting. And I can see where you, you would say it's problematic. Yeah. I mean, it's, but I could also see where he may feel like he was being discriminated against. Yeah, I mean, I guess it goes back to the idea of how you would define discriminated against. Correct. Right? So, so he's saying, I had a harder time publishing this as a white person than as a Chinese man. So there's a system biased against white poets and toward Chinese poets. But it's right, just but like if we're talking about affirmative action all of a sudden, but you're talking about professors publishing poems. Um, which is to say that, you know, the system has been balanced and stacked against anyone not white and male going so far back that to suggest in 2020 that you as a white man have it hard is But ridiculous. what's a, what's a, I mean, what's a white man's name? So if his name is right. like Richard Chambers, like how does he know that yeah. the person so is, is, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Is he saying there's an built-in bias towards Asian Americans or Chinese Americans? Like, you know, how does that one, that's the problem. That how does that problem. one experiment prove anything other than the second time you posted it, someone thought enough of it to publish it? That, that, you know what I mean? Sure. That, that yeah. could have happened if you sent it back under your name again. Yeah, I mean, it's not a very scientific experiment. 
there's a lot of variables. <laughs> there's a lot of factors. Um, I think he didn't really intend that as an experiment so much as he wanted to get the poem published and somebody and prove a point. Yeah, right. Or you know, probably just get a poem published well, and then the, the, the point developed later. I think mm, once he got caught. Okay, got that's you. my ah, my take on you. it. I think more than anything, he wanted to get the poem out there, thought that would work, and then kind of made a big deal of the fact that it Because it worked. Gotcha. 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 That's interesting. (laughs) So, you know, names, though, I mean, that's a good question. What what does a black name look like? What does a white name look like? I've I've been on one placement test grading group, and this is when you you send in like a writing sample to a university and members of the English department. And other faculty may sit down and try to decide, okay, should you go into English 101 or do you need a remedial English class or should you go straight to English 102? Um, And and this will be a more exciting example than that just made it sound like. (laughs) But um, I I have been on one of those groups grading these student writing samples and seen another professor sit there and kind of like make fun of some names. Mm. And they were names that struck him as stereotypically black names. And this was a white professor. Mm. So if he saw the name Malik, Malik, (laughs) Mm. there you go. Yeah, there you go. And did, he, uh, what did uh, what did uh, Kendrick Lamar say? Blacker than the names Tyrone mm. and Darius. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, and then poor Darius Rucker gets accused of not being black enough. <laughs> My name's Darius, man. Come on. <laughs> it don't get more black. Uh, poor oh, Darius Rucker. Poor had to start Darius doing country Rucker. music. Poor Hootie. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in that scenario, you can't convince me that a guy who would laugh at a student's name does not is, have implicit bias. Does not have implicit bias. <laughs> and that's not going to affect his grading. He would he would want to convince you of that though. Oh, absolutely. And he did. <laughs> when I brought this up. Um, he went straight to telling me all about his history, how he spent the 60s. Um, you know, he was, he was I, a, I love it. His record. Yeah, his record. <laughs> I'll have you know. <laughs> I watched Martin Luther King on TV when I was a kid. I, you know what? I I didn't turn. <laughs> I watched it. <laughs> That's it. Oh, uh, everybody's boy. proud of that record, right? Yeah, that record's a it, it's a big deal, man. It well, means you know, a lot. We heard I got receipts. Yeah. <laughs> We've even heard someone say, I'm the least racist person you know whose actions and statements would prove otherwise. Yeah. The least that you know. The least that you know. That's that's, that's quite a statement. Yeah. How how do you quantify that? (laughs) Yeah. How are we defining this? (laughs) But it's odd, you know, in academics in general, you've got the research side where anonymity and blind review is so important. But then in the classroom you can't hide that you're the professor up in front of the room. You know I mean? Maybe you could hide it online a little bit, but they can probably look up a picture up really easy. Correct. Correct. But even with the um, anonymity Mm. in peer review, I would think that just the way, the way we view the world is a byproduct of our upbringing environment, you know, yada, 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 yada. 
the bias is there. Oh, sure. Regardless, even if it's an anonymous peer review, it may not affect the grading from a standpoint of I know who wrote this before I read it. But mm. even in the text itself, how you interpret something is going to be based on certain biases. Of course. So, you know, it's that's as good of a process as I've heard to try and make things as objective, but it's hard. Nothing's ever going to be a hundred percent objective. And, you know, there's an ethical question too of should it matter? You know, say I do send out, I've never written an article on James Baldwin, but say I did, mm-hmm. would it be important for the reviewer to know that I'm a white scholar? Absolutely not. Absolutely okay. not. But it would be important to know what that reviewer thinks or feels about James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> True. And you know, the, the anonymity goes both ways. So you, as the author of this article sending it out, you don't know who you who reviewed are. it. Ah, uh, right. Well, that's fair. So then worst case scenario, what if I, as a white scholar wrote an article on James Baldwin and they sent it to three other white scholars who'd written articles on James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Now that does start to seem like a problem, right? Then you're not talking about one person so much as a really flawed system. Correct. Correct. And, you know, hopefully the editor of a journal would know better than to choose three white men to review an article by a white man, but you never know. But what you what you also hope is that we're able to judge or grade something on its, you know, literary prowess and the amount of research, you know, the things that you should be grading or judging on and not how you feel about the topics being addressed. Absolutely. And, you know, there there's a lot of shadiness going on. Um, the system is not perfect, as you said. No, no system is. <laughs> Especially, you know, the, <laughs> it seems to be the ones built here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> seem to have problems. But, but um, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. You got it. No, no, no. So on the other hand, right, you, you end up with those kind of reverse racism arguments, mm-hmm. which are, are just silly at their core. And you end up with like the the kind of straw man of affirmative action that has really never made anybody all that happy for the most part. But but white people tend to feel particularly wronged by the whole notion of affirmative action. You know, every man in America, every person in America should be judged on uh, the quality of his work, not what he looks like. Right. Um, And of course that that's looking at yourself as standing entirely outside of history. Mm-hmm. Right. If you really have to feel that way, if you have to think of, you know, as an individual, I really wanted to go to Michigan State, just like my dad and grandpa did. And goddamn affirmative action kept me out of it. You know, all these quotas have kept right. a, a stellar white student out of a good school. Right. And I hate to hear those kind of arguments. Mm. It just really rubs me the wrong way. Mm. Um, it's it's just individualistic and, you know, to the silliest extent. Right, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I could see where you would find it a tad insensitive. Yeah, to say the least. Right, right. 
Right, right, right. You know what I wanted to ask you, though, because, and I I don't know, because anonymity is important, um, but when you brought this topic to me, there was like some specifics in it that had to deal with what we were talking about in terms of you know who goes too far who doesn't mm. who's qualified as a um white um teacher or academic or just uh journalist or anything who's qualified to cover sure black culture who's not how is that determined? And you had, a, you had a scenario without, you know, giving super details of the scenario. You had a scenario where it appeared that, you know, like, you're cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that old <laughs> half-baked line. F you, F you, sure. F you. You're cool. You're cool. F you. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you kind of got to like, oh, well, Dr. Mickey Hess is cool. But not this, this other This is problematic. <laughs> right. And you kind of hit me and say, like, well, what makes me cool? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. again, you know, without without getting into names or specifics, because I haven't spoken to this other professor about it, and I want to speak to him directly first if I wanted to. Um, right. So basically the gist of what happened was um, another hip hop scholar that I know, a black professor, I don't actually know him. We've just interacted on Twitter a couple of times, basically the extent of him saying like, hey, I like this article you wrote, or I like this book you wrote, and me saying, cool, I like this thing you wrote. Um, that's about as well as I know him. But I saw the same person who who had first reached out and said he liked a thing I wrote about hip hop had um, joined in a thread, and not in a mean-spirited way at all, but another professor had put up a picture of a post from a very young white professor um, who's written a book about Beyonce and was excited about it. And the gist of her criticism was, you know, why is this, this young white guy writing a book about Beyonce? This looks all kind of wrong, all kinds of wrong. Um, and on the surface, I can't exactly disagree right it's there's a little bit of a cultural dissonance there like if it's that old conundrum right if you if you're such an expert on hip-hop culture black music culture part of that expertise should know that it's not always super welcoming of white journalists and white critics um and see i i think i disagree okay tell me why to me it really depends on kind of the narrative um but on the surface i it would be hard for me to be upset that a white individual decided to write a text about beyonce Mm -hmm. just for the sake of like being upset that a white person decided that they wanted to talk about Beyonce and that they don't have the cultural, you know what I mean? Mm. We're in, and I think we had this conversation earlier in the, early in the podcast where we talked about like where we, where we're at in terms of black culture at this point in time in our society where hip hop is the dominant culture in America, where we live in a hip hop country. And so we, as Black artists did a lot 
for that to be the case. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Where we're, the, where, you know, we did all of it. We're the sole contributors of why, of the culture, of why that, you know what I mean? Like we put the culture into the ethos and it has now grown through commerce and everything else into, you know, maybe our biggest export as a country. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. With that, white people are going to want to cover it. They get paid to do so. They get paid to interpret something that may be foreign in nature to the masses, to the masses. That's just going to happen. So I don't have a problem with that happening because if I had a problem with that happening, then I would ha- I should ha- also have a problem with Beyonce selling records to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It is you interesting that it, it could go both the, ways. And that's the you can't have it both ways thing with me. And I'm I'm oh you you'll hear me say that a million times on this podcast. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. So I'm never going to say I'm up in arms because this white writer wrote about hip hop. I mean, you know what I mean? We had um, Soren Baker on a couple weeks back. Sure. Yay, look, if you're qualified, based on what you're doing, you're qualified. I'm never going to have a problem with that. Now, what is the book about? If you're breaking down um, black feminism (laughs) as it relates to Beyonce's music, then maybe... And you're not like reaching out and gathering and, you know, like the piece is not done from an academic of your gathering these opinions and these words. and these. Mm-hmm. But if you're just going on your knowledge and experience of black feminism and giving me a book on Beyonce and black feminism, I probably would raise an eyebrow. But I'd raise an eyebrow if I wrote that book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, gender would come into it as well, right? You understand what I mean? So yeah. to me, it just becomes what liberties and that's that's, I think, the crux of the conversation. Mm-hmm. What liberties are you taking and, as an, a quote-unquote authority? Yeah, and you know, I misspoke. I called it a book. It was actually a peer-reviewed journal article. Mm. So this would have been something that went through the blind review process. They wouldn't have known it was a white author. Right. And, you know, right. and also the I said that it, it wasn't a mean response or a, a really negative response from the other scholar I know on Twitter. What he wrote was this is kind of the norm in terms of who and what gets published. Yeah. And that really points to the problem, right? It's, it's not so much an issue that one white man publishes an article on Beyonce. Of course, we got to read the article. And I don't think anybody that I've seen involved in the conversation has because it's not out yet. (laughs) This was a young dude excited that it got accepted for publication. (laughs) Right, right, right. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll read it. And uh, it'll shatter our expectations. I mean, obviously, the peer reviewers like correct. 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 It becomes a problem if this happens over and over and over. And and we know it does. And we know it does. We know it does. And that is a problem. But I don't. The solution to that problem is not Mm. white men are not allowed to write about Beyonce. Yeah, that would be a pretty slapdash solution, right? Yeah. Yeah. Beyonce is a American pop culture phenomenon. Anyone can write about her. 
So same as you've got to include Baldwin in an American Lit class. If you're teaching a class on American pop music, you got to include Beyonce. A hundred percent. Yeah, even you know, even if you preface it, preface that lesson by saying, "Of course, you guys see me at the front of the room. I'm a white man. I'm a white woman." Um, let's talk and think about how that plays into the way I treat and think about Beyonce. Correct, correct. Because then we get into the dance of the inclusion thing, mm, yeah. and and that's when we get into the having it both ways thing. Because it's like, do you want inclusion? Yeah. Or nah. And, it's, and inclusion comes with white scholars mm-hmm. and writers wanting to shed light, maybe, mm-hmm. or just tell their experience with black culture in some kind of way, or their study of it in some kind of way. I mean, they've been doing it for centuries. And they've yeah. been telling they've been telling it their own way to their own audience um and that's been problematic at many times and maybe okay at others i think our issue as a collective people has been the exclusion the deliberate exclusion of our contributions mm. and our voices and our stories as told by us that's what we should be working towards not banning white people from talking about it we should be publishing alternatives Mm -hmm. and creating opportunities to publish alternatives and if you're a white scholar you certainly have the responsibility to to look for opportunities to bring black scholars into the fold um, opportunities to collaborate on papers and books, opportunities on hiring committees to really watch out for black scholars, scholars of color. Um, I think there is a certain responsibility and it's the, the white scholars I tend to mistrust that when I ask them what they think about these things, they say not much, or <laughs> I don't like to think about that, right. uh, which is not an unusual response. You know, it's not atypical from the folks I've talked to. I've met plenty of white folks, professors who write about black artists and black authors, but they don't really want to think much about uh, what it means to be a white person doing that, Mm. which means they're probably not asking their students to do so. Yeah. And that Uh gets tricky. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I see that. Yeah. I see that clearly. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a slippery slope on both ends. Mm. Um, I think the dialogue and the understanding, um, the things that we always push for is what is necessary, but it is definitely what is lacking at the same time. Mm. I think the, um, the rash and swift kind of, dash to judgment is um you know it's tough on both ends on yeah. both ends and both ends and it and we're you know it creates someone's always on defense now that we don't like you said we don't we haven't seen anything from this article this kid's on defense yeah <laughs> and you know i feel kind of bad for him honestly um 
Because his work may be amazing. I don't know. Nobody's read it yet. We don't know. Exactly. (laughs) But a few folks kind of jumped on him. And, you know, the person I know on Twitter was not mean at all. He was very respectful, just replied to the thread and said, unfortunately, you know, this is kind of the norm and who gets published. But, uh, and that, and then that leads to another point because that was, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. If we know who gets published, and we can assume that, well, not even assumption based on, you know, decades upon decades of historic, you know, to be proof. Sure. The majority of these topics, these things, the, the, the you know, it's going to be from a Eurocentric perspective. Sure. So... If someone is writing about a black artist and we know the disproportionate amount of material that is approved and published from a Eurocentric perspective, even though I guess if a white guy is writing it, then it's going to be a Beyonce from a Eurocentric perspective maybe is that still better than no published articles about Beyonce at all because the trend and the tendency is that white writers are going to be published more yeah I mean I don't I hope it doesn't come down to that exact decision you know the alternative of no Beyonce articles or white guy Beyonce articles I do think there there's some middle ground, right? I would hope so, but the I'm just the math seems yeah. to skew the other way. So true. are we angry that you know, without seeing the article again, are we angry that a white guy is writing about Beyonce? We don't know what he's writing. We're just angry that he's writing about Beyonce because he shouldn't be writing about Beyonce or that shouldn't be published because there were probably 10 or so or however many African-American or people of color authors who may have or writers or academia who may have written text on Beyonce that did not get published. So basically, is he taking someone's spot? Is he taking someone's spot? Is he taking the spot where a black scholar could be publishing something, right? And I think that's a very fair way to frame it. Yeah. Um, Probably he is. You know, probably. He's somebody's spot. I mean, if he's got a spot, someone doesn't. So by by virtue, Mm -hmm. he doesn't. Does that mean he's not deserving? You know, again, like, you know, where are we shooting? Are we we're shooting at this kid for writing an article? Are we shooting at the system? Like, what are we shooting at? Mm. What is our aim? Yeah, I mean, I've certainly taken people's spots too, the same way, inadvertently, you know, by virtue of getting something published. Um, mm-hmm. There's only so many articles that can go in a journal, only so many issues each year, only budget for so many books published each year by each company. I mean, yeah, resources are limited. And resources are limited and you know they're they're more limited when you're marginalized yeah so yeah i mean it's this is definitely making me think and rethink a lot of topics that i've i've come back to time and again yeah 
And I mean, thinking only does so much. You know, I, I think it's better than the folks who don't want to think about it or would just rather leave it aside. Or even the, the white professors who would rather just not really teach a whole lot of black culture because they don't want to risk doing it too much or doing right. it the wrong way or right. offending someone. But I mean, at what point does, does a white scholar like me say, you know, I've I got a few articles on hip hop. I got a few books. Maybe it's time I should uh, step aside, make more room for potentially scholars of color to get into these venues. Mm. I just, I think that you do your best to um, personally be conscious of, you know, what you're writing, how you're writing it, you know, where your stuff may come into it. And you do that dance on your own. And then I think you do your best to amplify black voices that can offer, you know, a more intrinsic is that the word experience mm-hmm. to some of the things that you bring up i think that's that's what you can do you sacrificing your career to make sure like there's no guarantee that if you do that 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 black person is going to get the shot anyway you might just not get the shot <laughs> might be the next so white guy <laughs> i'd rather and that's where we're talking i'd rather you than that guy so you keep doing what you have to do and we need to work on creating our own system back to the house thing mm-hmm. and leverage and gaining equity so that these things aren't a problem anymore. <laughs> we can't yeah. be mad at Mickey Hess for getting yeah. a job. Yeah, and you know, Mickey Hess can do his best sticking with the house metaphor. Maybe I can point students of color to some realtors I know in the publishing business, to some mortgage brokers I know in the publishing business. Right. Um, there's there's a lot of really good opportunities right now for black students in particular and students of color across the board. I mean, there's this foundation called We Need Diverse Books. It's this great foundation. They do an internship scholarship or internship fellowship. You find yourself an internship with all these different publishing companies, and they give you like a bump in salary on top of the internship and, uh, you know, hook you up a little bit further. And it's a great organization because there's just very minimal diversity in the uh, publishing world. So, Mm. you know, the more of my undergrads I can point that kind of direction, help land internships, all of that. yeah, that's one place I can start outside of just writing and research. Right. And you you know, you have to be active and doing your thing in order to do that. But if you decide that you need to take a step back to allow the system <laughs> to that's let true. these black voices in, that's you know, that's emphatically now cipher, as we would say. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that that's not gonna work. What's gonna work is you and your one zillionth tenth of a percent of the system, mm. you know what I mean? Like the leverage you have been given that you can use any amount of that mm. to f- advance black voices. That's the best you can do. Stepping away is not good. And, you know, stepping away can be a cop out too. 
And it probably 100%. sounds like a cop out to say that, but it definitely can be, right? It's an 100%. easy thing. It's an easy. The work is not in that. Yeah. And the, the allyship is not in that. You know what I mean? There, mm-hmm. there are institutions in this country and in this world who are just um, cut off to black people. Sure. You know what I mean? They're just, they're, we're shut out in some way, shape or form. Um, and so it doesn't matter what you forsake for yourself. Those institutions will remain closed until there are white individuals who can be in these institutions and open the door. And, you know, I hope this very recent push for, more equity, more diversity, more equitable opportunities in higher education and publishing. I hope it's not just going to be short-lived, but history tells me it will be. Mm. So, you know, I, I really urge my students, when you see these opportunities, they may not be here next year. Um, you know, they may definitely not be here five years from now. White America has tended to think that... um a little burst of attention goes a long way. And then, you know, three or four years later, you can strip it right back out of the budget. Well, you know, we, we had this foundation for three years. Surely that's plenty. Um, so <laughs> I mean, I, I mistrust the new dedication as far as its sustainability. Let's, 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 let's pause right there. Yeah. Because I want to get into that, okay. the response okay. Next time on a guest in the house podcast, because I want to do a deep dive on that. You know, we're just getting back started. I really wish that I had came prepared with a Malik B verse, Mm. but um, no, I have nothing, man. (laughs) Well, I can take us out with a quick paragraph. I would love that. That would be awesome. Yeah, let's do it. So this is a little clip from my book, A Guest in the House of Hip Hop. just goes to the topic we spoke on today of white professors kind of backing away from the challenge of addressing race in the classroom when there's just the slightest bit of criticism of their methods. So here we go. I worry that the lesson many white professors take away from such criticisms is not that there is a better way to discuss these issues, but that white professors would be smarter to avoid ever bringing them up at all. And one admittedly extreme case in which a white professor used the N-word uncensored in class, she walked away from her critics scared to bring race back up. To be honest, she told Inside Higher Ed, I am afraid of engaging in a discussion of race and diversity in the classroom. I believe it will be harder for me to respond to my students now because I am afraid of saying something wrong. End quote. But should her fear of repercussions for offending her students trump the fear that that word can provoke? That word was the rallying cry for a campaign of racist terror waged by whites against blacks. If we want to talk about the history of fear, we could talk about the fear of being disenfranchised and dehumanized, the fear of being lynched. In that context, it's absurd to focus on a white professor's fear of saying something wrong. White professors have ignored race in their lectures for far too long, so I do worry about a culture that makes a professor afraid to try. But I worry more about a culture that does not encourage a professor to think before she speaks. 
This particular professor suggested she might seek more training. Quote, I hope that I can use resources on my campus and support from other faculty to better equip myself for such a situation. End quote. I'd like to think she doesn't mean she'll lean on her colleagues of color and leave the discussions of race in their hands. We need more black and Latino and Asian professors, no question, but we do need white professors to think more about race, not to avoid addressing it altogether. And that's that. That's that. That's that. That's what it is, brother. So that's the guest in the house episode. Who knows what? (laughs) i'm mickey hess and i'm still david shanks for sure and we'll be back next time yes sir big bro you already know